You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Wednesday, November 4, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Today, I'm joined by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, with the day's stories, Peter Cooper. Thanks, Ash. Here in the U.S., the election is not over yet. The ballot count has not finished for many states as officials wait for the remaining mail-in ballots to trickle in over the coming days. The race is very tight in some key states, such as Michigan, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina, and therefore have not been called yet. At this point, each candidate has a path to victory. Despite this uncertainty around the outcome, the major U.S. indices are rallying today at the time of recording, and the realized vol in futures is high. However, anything could happen in the coming days, depending on how this election continues to unfold, so investors should continue to exercise caution. Setting all that aside for now, let's highlight some of the economic data that is rolling out, which might have been swept under the rug in light of election coverage. Starting with the ADP report, which came out today, the actual number is far and away from the forecast. U.S. payrolls added 365,000 jobs last month, seasonally adjusted, when the expected median projection was 643,000. Goods producers only added 17,000 jobs last month, demonstrating low amounts of hiring for manufacturing and construction. Jobs data from the BLS will be coming out this Friday, which is forecasted to show an increase of 700,000. Historically, the ADP report and the BLS reports have aligned very closely with one another. In other words, Friday's jobs report may also miss expectations and demonstrate sustained pain for the labor markets, just as the ADP report has. The ISM non-manufacturing PMI also had a miss, with a reading that stands at 56.6, when the forecast was 57.5. The previous reading was 57.8. This is the slowest expansion of the non-manufacturing PMI in the past five months. The decline is tied to slowing business activity, new orders, employment, and inventories are growing. All of these things tie to an uncertain future with the resurgence of COVID-19 in the states. It stands in contrast to the ISM manufacturing PMI, whose readings came in at 59.3, up from 55.4 in the previous month. The boost in the manufacturing numbers is derived from the continual increase in new orders and production, as well as customer inventories being too low. The new orders number is exceptional, the strongest since early 2004. Employment for manufacturing is expanding for the first time since the middle of last year. And to break it all down for us, next we have Ed and Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back, Ed. Yes, thank you very much. I was actually uh, on holiday for two days. You picked uh, a good two days to get away from the ground. <laughs> Definitely. So, slow news day. <laughs> you know, talking of which, uh, let's take a look at how we ended yesterday's Real Vision Daily Briefing. You know, look, 160 million uh, votes expected in total today by some estimates I saw in USA Today. We've got about 100 million people who have turned out already. Uh, 
the Trump Clinton election in uh, 2016 was decided by about 80,000 votes distributed across a handful of states. It strikes me uh, that you can throw out the polling data at this point. Just about anything can happen. Throw out the polls. Anything can happen. Yes, definitely throw out the polls. Anything can happen. And, you know, uh, that is exactly what uh, I don't know if you remember this. We were talking about this on uh, Monday uh, from uh, last week that that. I think the, the, the genesis of my commentary on Monday uh, had a lot to do with exactly your sentiments there. Um, I, I put in the comments there, I, I, uh, one of our viewers, Kevin, he was responding to us. And I said, Kevin, I, I happen to think that a Trump win and a Republican Senate are two outcomes that are not getting enough airtime in terms of the dispersion of potential outcomes that result. I, I also said that that's why I went over them. Uh, last Monday. This whole blue wave thesis that people were talking about, really, I thought that was overplayed. I think, you know, what I was saying is, hang on, there are some reasonably uh, possible outcomes that we should run through, including the Republican Senate and a Trump win. And uh, I think that what we're seeing now is that at least one of those two can actually happen. Yeah, it's an elaboration on a theme, Ed. Mainstream media have uh, the simplistic narrative, and uh, your thesis is always more nuanced. It looks like uh, right now there's a possibility, at least, that the Republicans can control the Senate uh, going forward. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the way that I'm looking at this is when you look at the markets, uh, I think that some of the moves that we're seeing in markets today are an unwind of this whole blue wave thesis. Uh, as well as um, an unwind of, uh, of VIX hedge trades uh, for potential um, chaos, post-election chaos. So I think that this whole thing, on the one side, we could have chaos. On the other side, it could be a blue wave. Those are more extreme examples of which way it could go. Really, what we're getting is something that's more down the middle. And the markets seem to like that. They're unwinding those positions. The markets like that on the bond side because that means uh, less uh, stimulus, and that's great for bonds because it means low growth, uh, almost even sclerotic growth, I would say. And on the equity side, it likes it just because you know people were unwinding this uh, this dick spiking trade, and we'll just have to see what kind of follow through that we get as the week goes on, and uh, and we get more information coming in. Yeah, maybe it's a, a kind of sigh of relief that the worst has been avoided. But still, I look at those numbers from the close today. Uh, we're filming here around 4.15. Uh, so things can definitely change on the election front as we have this conversation between now and when we air around 6 o'clock. But I look at the close on markets today, and I'm I'm wondering what they're celebrating. Yeah, uh, it, it's not clear to me uh, whether or not this is just a, uh, a, a purely, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news type of thing where the rumor was that bad things were going to happen and now there's a bit of a relief or if there's something that's more fundamental to what's happening. But the bond head fake, the, you know, the move in the bonds to me is much more substantial in terms of telling us what uh, what we're looking at going forward. And I'm looking at the data. You know, we, we talked about the data. Uh, Peter talked about the data. That's what I'm looking at. And, you know, the numbers are, are definitely showing weakness. And we can yeah. go through some of the numbers that we've seen over the past uh, few weeks or so and put them in the context of what's happening on the political front. But from yeah. my perspective, you know, we have a slowing economy. 
Uh, we have uh, a COVID-19 outbreak, which is getting worse. There were, uh, I think, 1,130 deaths recorded today, uh, over 90,000 uh, uh, infections. And then we also have uh, this political chaos that is not completely uh, outdone yet. So we have a lot of uh, bumpiness to contend with. And I think that the bonds selling, bonds rallying and yield selling off is a, is a sign that uh, people are a bit concerned. Well, you know, let's do exactly that, Ed. Um, you know, one of the uh, numbers that came out today, of course, is the ADP payroll number. Uh, and that is very much in line with your thesis. Yeah. So m my thinking is, is that we're in a reverse radical, you know, uh, inverse paycheck uh, um, type of uh, recovery. So that means we get a V-shape off the bottom, but then you have a kink as a growth slows and that we're now into the kink section of that growth. And even though we still have tens of millions of people who are out of who are out of work, we're only getting 300,000 uh, on the ADP number for the private economy for this month. 300,000 uh, will get you to the number that we need over the course of, say, three years. So we're not going to get back to square one uh, for at a minimum three years, if not more, if we continue along at the pace that we are right now. So basically what we're seeing is, is we're seeing sort of a, uh, a market slowdown in uh, the pace of job growth. And to me, that's not consistent with a robust uh, recovery. It's much more consistent with the sclerotic, a very uneven and difficult recovery. Yeah. And the number was uh, 365,000 new positions added for the month. Uh, this is, uh, well, I guess this one's a quadruple threat. Below prior, 749. Below prior revised, 753. Below consensus range, 500,000 to 900,000. And I think I read somewhere in the journal uh, that the actual print was below all but a single estimate this time around. Yeah. So, I mean, very, very weak. And we'll just have to see what uh, the official data say. But, you know, my view is, is that we should, at a minimum, see those numbers compounded by a, uh, a lowering of the jobless, uh, an increase in the jobless claims numbers as uh, this COVID uh, uh, thing starts to bite again. I think that by the end of December, uh, you know, jobless claims will start to rise up again. That's my prediction. It may not actually come to, to pass, but, you know, 365 is not going to be uh, a low number. It could actually even be a high number over the next two or three months after this. Yeah. Uh, and what other data points are you looking at? Yeah, I'm just looking at this right now uh, in terms of what came out today. Uh, and what I would say is, is, is that I looked at the ISM numbers. I thought they were kind of interesting. The ISM non-manufacturing uh, business activity number, uh, that was, uh, the, and the, the ISM overall uh, number was really weak. The ISM non-manufacturing PMI came in at 56.6. That was against uh, 57.8 prior and 57.5. Uh, so that's the services sector. So that's the larger portion of the economy. To me, basically, what we're seeing now is, is that we're seeing these numbers start to roll over in a way that is worse than expected. So what we're seeing is, is that we're seeing numbers that would suggest that the GDP growth that's baked into uh, the numbers for Q4 are going to be uh, too high, that yeah. we're going to see GDP numbers uh, go down, the estimates for Q4 uh, go down, and 
they're going to continue to go down uh, uh, more into the future. Yeah. You know, talking of numbers, let me just read through the closing numbers on U.S. equity indices uh, in case uh, you haven't heard them yet. So S&P 500 closes at 34.43, up 2.2%. The NASDAQ closes at 11,590, up 3.85%. Russell 2000 is the laggard on the day, up 0.5% 0.5% to close at 16.15, and the Dow settling at 27,847, up 1.34% for the day. So a little bit of dispersion there across those numbers. VIX declines 16.8% down uh, to uh, 29.57 on the day. Yes. So, um, you know, again, I, it's hard to say whether or not those numbers are representative of true optimism. Uh, and, you know, obviously the tech numbers were, were better than the S&P, which was better than uh, the Dow, or whether it's uh, reflective of just positioning that people had had prior to the, uh, the election. I would add, if you looked at crude oil as an example, uh, you know, commodities did fairly well. So WTI and Brent were up on the day in a, a decent way. So that would suggest... Uh, the opposite of what I was saying with regard to why bonds are selling off, because you wouldn't expect if on a fundamental level that uh, we're going to get some serious uh, problems going forward that uh, that uh, Brent and WTI would be up, but they were up. So it's yeah. just one day's data across the board. So it's, it's hard to build a consistent narrative. We just have to take a look and see. But, you know, my narrative in terms of uh, how to think about all of this is that we got ahead of ourselves in terms of uh, thinking about outcomes and the outcome that people weren't expecting. That is, uh, you know, the Republicans doing anything in the Senate or even Trump taking the the White House. Um, those those are actually likelier. They were likelier than people were giving them credit for. We may, in fact, see the Senate become a Republican Senate if Joe Biden is the uh, president, that's going to be an outcome that I think uh, Ted Cruz and others have already said, Mitch McConnell, that they're not going to give him a free hand. There's not going to be a huge amount of stimulus. And to the degree that we have a slowdown, which I believe is happening right now, uh, we're going to run into a bit of a problem. And that's going to call on the Fed to, to turn on the turbochargers. I think your conversation with Hari that was that was very on point because he said that if the Fed needs to do something on the QE front because QE is basically a financial instrument, it's not going to have any impact unless they really turn it on. So the Fed's going to have to really yeah. turn on their balance sheet or they're going to have to go to a more unconventional activity if the configuration that I think looks likely to happen, which is Biden and re- the Republican Senate uh, comes into fruition. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's spot on and exactly right on the uh, political analysis. You know, uh, it appears as though Republicans may hold. I guess the only question now, uh, Mitch McConnell reelected last night, so the question is: Is he majority leader or minority leader? In either case, uh, if we get a, a Biden presidency, but especially if he's majority leader, not really incentivized uh, to con- to, uh, to to cooperate there. It just looks as you you were suggesting more choppy. And to square the circle uh, with some of the closing numbers, look, we've got uh, we've got yields down, bond prices up, uh, and then you know here we have uh, WTI uh, and crude both uh, up on the day about three and a half percent. 
And then, you know, we see something interesting, which is uh, which is the sector rotation. Uh, And look, big winners, uh, healthcare, uh, comm services and tech XLK up. I think uh, the uh, the tech sec select sex spider uh, up about um, up about three point nine percent on the day. Yeah. So again, it, it's hard to know what uh, right. what that means. Is it unwinding? I mean, because obviously, uh, I was thinking beforehand that the tech sector was going to be in trouble, big tech at a minimum, because uh, Trump was going to go on the war path against them. And the same is even true with Biden, but it's probably right. less true with Biden. Uh, same thing with media companies, healthcare. care. Uh, you know, it's hard to know if that's if that has anything to do politically. So going forward, my focus is is on the economy more than the politics. I think that the the politics is a blip that's going to pass over the next month or two. The real question for the, from the political perspective is what that configuration means in terms of tail risk for the economy and for markets. Uh, to the degree that the economy uh, has a soft patch and the Fed is called on to act because uh, the, uh, the fiscal taps are, are turned off, then you know there's a different configuration that comes out of that than if uh, the Congress goes in guns blazing and really turns it on in terms of the fiscal stimulus. Yeah, you're tracking a lot of different variables at a lot of different levels in this thesis, Ed. You've got, uh, first and foremost, the underlying economy. You've got the drivers uh, from the COVID pandemic. You've got politics, and then you've got the reaction function in markets. Uh, You know, when I look at markets today, it's really tough to say what it means. I think that's probably understating the case, if anything. Uh, Maybe a uh, a more honest way of saying it would be these numbers are just just baffling. Yeah, they, they really are. And But uh, in terms of real vision, who we are as a brand, I would say that w- where we are is we're talking about the data. We're talking about the numbers. Right. We're not talking about the politics in terms of, uh, you know, uh, why it happened and uh, what we think. It's sort of just straight in terms of this is these are the possible scenarios and then this is what we think about those scenarios in terms of uh, what what are the probabilities. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And I think also to pick up on the conversations that you and I had, conversations I've had with Tom Thornton, with Harry Krishnan, uh, it, it's important to, to note that you can have a, a set of numbers that come out. For example, uh, market close numbers on, uh, on the, the day after a major election and have them be baffling to you without shaking your longer term thesis that you can have uh, multiple time horizons that you're looking at simultaneously uh, and have a day like today where nothing really makes sense. You don't really know uh, whether this is price distortion coming uh, from, as you said, positioning uh, on the uh, on the derivative side and, and people you know rebalancing trades. We just don't know for today, but that's okay. We're thinking about this more holistically and we're trying to look into what some of the underlying causes are and what the longer term trends are. Yeah, and I think that Hari's point in terms of different time horizons uh, for trades is very uh, to the point. Uh, Real Vision has a tendency to look at a longer term time horizon. We do have some people on, Tony Greer in particular, who's good at uh, looking at momentum and thinking in a shorter term fashion. And so that's good. I think that what's happening now is much more geared to that thinking in terms of you know, taking positions over a shorter period of time, understanding, you know, where the flows are and where they're coming and going. But to me, it doesn't really change the longer term trajectory, except to the degree that it has an impact on the composition of stimulus and tail risk and uh, from a political perspective and from an economic perspective. Uh, for me, also, 
in terms of how to trade this, uh, uh, since I'm not a trader, the question is, is what, uh, you know, how choppy are things going to get? I right. would actually posit that uh, some of these uh, legal wranglings are going to actually uh, have bear fruit. That it's really, it's not clear yet, even though it seems like, yes, we're going to get a, um, a clarity in terms of Michigan and in terms of Wisconsin, uh, Arizona soon. And we, we may even find out who the winner is within the next 24 hours. There, there are going to be some lawsuits. So this whole thing is going to continue on. There might even be, in a worst case scenario, a two sets of electors sent from the state of Pennsylvania uh, on December the 8th to be able to, uh, you know, certify the votes uh, for, uh, for, you know, the Constitution of the United States says that the legislature sends the, uh, you know, sends the electors. Uh, we, as we become a more democratic nation, we've said that, okay, so if the people elect the, the, the president, then we're going to follow the, the will of the people, and therefore we're going to send the electors that uh, follow the will of the people. What happens if, you know, the legislature sends one set of electors for Trump and uh, the governor of Pennsylvania sends another set of electors for Biden? How does that all play out? Those are the kinds of scenarios that we just don't know. You know, yeah. we haven't had anything like that since uh, 1876. Yes. And I don't think that we should consider those um out of us out of the woods of from those particular scenarios yet they still can happen you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com yeah you know, I, I think of it and as effectively just an increase in tail risk that we've seen all around. And that's probably why I've hammered on this idea that some of the prices, especially the U.S. equity market closes today, seem baffling to me. It just seems like we have additional tail risk on the table. Look, we're recording this here at 4.30 p.m. It's entirely possible uh, by 6 p.m. we'll have more definitive results from multiple states in this election. Uh, we'll look all sewn up and that, you know, a week from now, we'll look back on this and think, oh, my gosh, so why were we worried about it? But the reality is that what we're seeing is an increase in tail risk. The potential outcomes uh, on the tails have widened. Uh, and and look, we've got a chart uh, where we can take a look at uh, November 7 to December 12, 2000, Bush Gore, where we see uh, a peak to trough drawdown of 8.5% around the uncertainty. Uh, you know, so, and as you point out, Ed, it's not just uh, 2000. There is ample precedent for this. Uh, 1876, uh, an election that I'm sure uh, Jack Farley knows about from reading the Gore Vidal novel, uh, chance in the streets of Tilden or Blood. 1800, another problematic year. This is an incredibly close election. We have a country that is divided nearly 50-50. Uh, and we live in a country where, um, you know, I have friends in rural areas who don't know anyone who voted for Biden-Harris. Uh, and I have friends here in New York media who are baffled by the fact that there was anyone uh, who voted for anyone but Biden and Harris. It is a really 
troubling and problematic time because you have this intense polarization and we have this structure uh, for U.S. election. And this is another really important point that I don't think we hear talked about enough. This is a very unusual structure that the United States has among Western democracies. We're not a unitary state uh, like France. It's a federalized republic, but it has these vestigial, almost Confederate-like aspects to it. Election law is decided by the state. So you have a federal election, a national election, but the actual power to administer, to certify, and this was your point about certifying electors, takes place at the state level. You know, the year 2000 uh, was difficult with that case, that court case, of course, uh, the the Bush v. Gore, uh, challenging court case. Now you have the potential of this happening at multiple states at the same time again, we don't know. Things could turn out remarkably smoothly, uh, but there is, at very least, an increasing tail risk that we're seeing coming on the table, in my view. Yeah, uh, and uh, I, I know for a fact that uh, the Trump administration, or the Trump campaign, rather, they've already issued a lawsuit about what's happening in Michigan. Uh, you know, Wisconsin was called for the, uh, for Biden by AP. And in, in Pennsylvania, there's definitely going to be lawsuits uh, there with regard to trying to stop the vote. So a yeah. lot of months ahead, and it's really uncertain given you know how our system is. And as you said, in terms of it being a confederacy, I mean, the way the system was, was designed at the beginning, to be honest with you, it wasn't designed for the average guy. It was designed for a specific elite few, and even those elite few weren't considered to be uh, in the know. That's why the legislatures were were given the role because you know you voted for the legislature, and then the le- legislature was supposed to therefore uh, pick the electors. That's how it was first considered in uh, the 18th century. But uh, over time, we've become much more democratic. But the yes. Constitution is the Constitution. It says what it says. And it's not clear how this is going to play out in the courts uh, going forward. So there is still a lot of tail risk, as you say. Um, I think, though, obviously, by January the 20th uh, will be where we need to be. So obviously, if you're a trader that you can play with the tail risk, there's going to be there are going to be bouts of volatility in all likelihood. But once we get to January the 20th, uh, the composition is going to be there. I think the likely composition is going to be divided government. I think it's very unlikely that we're going to have a blue wave where you have uh, blue in the, in, the, in the White House, blue in the Senate, and blue in uh, the House of Representatives. And that's the position where you would have the maximum amount of stimulus. All the other scenarios that are on the table are ones that are various levels of gridlock. Uh, yeah. and, and so I think that those are scenarios where the Fed is going to be called on more uh, and there's going to be less coming from fiscal authorities. And to the degree that you have any sort of uh, you know, economic problems, then Hari's uh, comment about the Fed needing to turn it on comes into play. Likely, that means there's going to be a lot of Fed bond buying. And I think that uh, the Fed is going to go into qualitative easing. That means they're going to start buying into the uh, you know, commercial, they're going to start buying into uh, bonds and potentially high yield bonds. And they're going to have to start thinking about other things that they could do, yield curve control uh, and, and all sorts of other things. I have an interview actually coming up, which I think is very interesting on that point, uh, with uh, a guy from Double Line 
who wrote a great paper, uh, Bill Campbell, about uh, digital currencies. That's the new frontier for central banks. Uh, so if you think about paradigm shifts, one of the newest paradigm shifts potentially, which could give uh, central banks much more fiscal-like authority, is digital currency. This is going to be an interesting, a really good conversation. So I, I'm really looking forward to uh, having people hear what he has to say. Yeah, I think those are really important points. I'm really looking forward to that as well. Obviously, I'm interested in central bank digital currencies. Uh, you know, the, the Fed, I think you're absolutely correct, is going to disproportionately uh, bear the burden of this because, look, the Fed uh, was established uh, a little over 100 years ago in 1913. This is, as you pointed out earlier, in the in the evolution of the American voting system. Look, this was, uh, you're absolutely right, exclusionary and aristocratic uh, by design. Uh, and also, in addition to that, uh, was something that was very much designed in a Tenth Amendment world, a world where states' rights were uh, were were had a, a level of primacy. Uh, you know, we've we've basically kind of backfilled the American electoral system. Uh, if you think about it, the you know the uh, the Fifteenth Amendment, the Nineteenth Amendment, the Voting Rights Act, and these changes are trying to stitch together or modify something that has existed for a very long time. And sometimes uh, what uh, what breaks is efficiency. You try and uh, you try and compromise, uh, and you know you get some of the challenges that you have today. You don't have this very very pure, uh, very um, elegant structure uh, by design, that it, it is about those compromises that we negotiate with ourselves as a culture and as a society. And so as a consequence, uh, you've got uh, the Federal Open Markets Committee, which is a small group of like-minded individuals uh, who can act very quickly. Now, the potential here is for long-term risk coming on the table uh, to avoid short-term cataclysm. Uh, and that's something that people should be worried about. The idea of we've never really lived with yield curve controls before. A $7 trillion balance sheet, interest rates uh, at historic lows, basically at 0 to 25 bips, uh, pinned near the zero bound. These are things that could go on for quite some time uh, as uh, the electoral process grinds forward. I just saw an alert here. Joe Biden predicted to win Michigan. This is going to air two hours from now. This is the sort of environment that we're in. <laughs> A lot of risk on the table. It's 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 difficult, and and I'm not being I'm not being sort of perma bearish here. I'm just talking about a relatively short term. I don't really know how you can feel optimistic about an up and to the right trend in these markets. Uh, you know, between now and say the first of the year. Look, it could happen, but additional tail risk coming onto the table, pretty clear. Yeah, you know, and since I'm a bond guy, let me give you a um, a thought here. This is this comes straight from Bill Campbell, uh, and I, this is an interview I think that you should definitely watch. Uh, what he said is, is if you're one of the people who believes in the primacy of markets to a certain degree uh, and the ability of markets to uh, front run policy, then you should watch what happens with interest rates uh, at the zero lower bound. And what he meant by that is, is if you have rates penned at zero, as we do now, uh, and something happens in the economy that causes the Fed and other central banks to need to pour on more stimulus, keep rates at zero for a longer period of time, you're going to see uh, those rates tip into negative territory ever so slightly. We've seen this with uh, longer dated uh, UK rates, that some of the rates, you know, have started to drift into uh, the negative territory. And now, we saw this before the Japanese went uh, into negative rates. We saw this 
before the Europeans went into negative rates as well. And so what happened in both of those scenarios with the Japanese and the Europeans is, is, is that you saw this sort of like hedging movement, the, the market telling you, pushing the, the central bank in a certain direction. And then when the central bank acted upon that, the rates went quickly very negative. So across the curve, you saw the German bunts go all the way down to negative 80 basis points. Same thing happened with uh, Japan. They went very far down. So there is the potential for one last burst, one last hurrah of, uh, of, uh, of, of yield. So if you think about the uh, U.S. Uh, rates, it's not that the curve flattens all the way to zero from 77 basis points where it is now. It's that it flattens to zero. It goes to, say, negative two it, it hangs out around there. Suddenly, the Fed comes in uh, after having expanded the balance sheet to $15 trillion and says, that's it, we're going to try negative rates now, too. And then suddenly, the, the curve goes to negative 40. Uh, that's kind of how, uh, how the whole thing happens. So there's a lot of convexity in that trade. So there's definitely some room uh, for upside potential there. It's not completely over in terms of the uh, convergence to zero. Uh, and I think this is a very interesting thing. If people are thinking about you know, how they want to position themselves, uh, it's something to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a very comprehensive analysis and an important point to bear in mind as we look at these bond markets. So, Ash, you, uh, before we got on, you said you had a conviction trade that you wanted to talk about. Uh, before, uh, you said it was a surprise, actually. Yes. Uh, talk to me about that. What is your, your conviction trade now uh, after the election? Well, not investment advice, but I do have a high conviction analysis. And that is, oh, yeah. okay. it's, actually, it's actually a pair trade of a kind. I am short rents in Greenpoint, Fort Greene, Williamsburg, and Bushwick and long rents in Jersey City, New Jersey, on the word last night that New Jersey, the garden state, which now has a new meaning, has legalized cannabis. <laughs> I expect a flight to uh, our, uh, our western shore here to New Jersey as all of the hipsters move out of Brooklyn and move into Jersey City and Hoboken and Weehawken. There you go. Actually, you know, uh, I used to uh, rent a place uh, in Jersey City, uh, you know, before COVID that I used to come into the office uh, from. So Jersey City is, is, uh, is a great place. I, I, I'm a big fan. Yeah, it's a super cool place. Lots of great cafes and coffee shops and restaurants. The rents are more reasonable. Uh, and it's just a cool place to hang out. And I expect uh, with the results of last night's uh, vote, probably even more desirable to hipsters in their 20s. Good. I, let's leave it on that positive note. Uh, and by the way, let me say that uh, South Dakota, I think that, that that's what yeah. prompted you to say that because I gave you that article. South Dakota is now legalizing marijuana as well. It's definitely coming on more. And uh, if I could uh, say one last thing on that, uh, I know that Tony Greer is trying to uh, hook up a conversation with uh, my, my cousin, I like to call him, Todd Harrison, uh, who's going to be talking about the cannabis market and what's happening there, what the dynamics are. So I'm looking forward to seeing that on the platform as well. Yeah. And of course, also last night, Oregon legalizing uh, magic mushrooms and, and some hard drugs. I mean, decriminalizing, I guess, is probably the correct term, basically making it a low priority for law enforcement. But it really does seem, especially with South Dakota, uh, the trend is inevitable here. It's a demographic one. We are moving away from what has been uh, disastrous uh, and costly in terms of human lives uh, and, also, uh, and also treasure uh, money and exorbitant 
uniquely uh, priced privilege to do. It seems like we're moving away from this war on drugs. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Ash. And uh, I think that's a good thing. So yeah, uh, silver lining. Progressives and libertarians uh, agree. <laughs> Ed Harrison, thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.